What I'd like is for folk to, I think, be open-minded to the fact that sometimes our thinking is based on old science, based on what we were taught, that we come to believe and normalise certain practices and we don't challenge. We don't challenge the status quo. Welcome to Pomegranate, a CPD podcast from the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Medical practice is dynamic and continually changes with evidence and experience. But costly or prolonged treatment doesn't always translate into better outcomes for patients. In response, the college has launched Evolve, a partnership between the RACP and specialty societies to identify and reduce low-value care. Evolve is part of a growing international movement to examine clinical and consumer decision-making about overused, inappropriate or potentially harmful medical treatments. As a founding partner of Choosing Wisely Australia, Evolve represents the college's major contribution to the campaign, helping fellows develop and promote lists of low-value care items for their specialty. Professor Rochelle Bookbinder directs the Department of Clinical Epidemiology at Monash University and has co-led the development of a low-value care list for the Australian Rheumatology Association. Associate Professor Warwick Inder, who teaches at the University of Queensland, is President-elect of the Endocrine Society of Australia, which has also recently released a list of their top five low-value items. They are joined on the podcast by Associate Professor Ian Scott, the Director of Internal Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology at Princess Alexandra Hospital, and whose research interests include the cognitive biases of clinical decision-making. On today's episode, they discuss why they support Evolve, the challenges and opportunities of the campaign, and how they work with patients when the best course of action is to wait. I'm Ian Scott. I'm Director of Internal Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology at Princess Alexandra Hospital and Associate Professor of Medicine at the uh, University of Queensland here in Brisbane. I would define low-value care as care that is inappropriate and confers little or no benefit to patients or may indeed expose them to possible harm. I think it was about 12 years ago really when I became interested in it for two reasons. One, having become aware of the evidence-based medicine movement that came out of McMaster University and reading their materials and realising that a lot of what we were taught in medical school and perhaps even in our training program wasn't really relevant to our actual practice of medicine in differentiating between what was good care and what was uh, suboptimal care. I think low-value care in many respects is a legacy of our medical training We're taught things in medical school and subsequently in our training programs that at the time are believed to be correct, but we know that scientific evidence evolves and changes over time and that the half-life of medical knowledge is about seven years. So about half of what we've learnt within seven years is redundant, no longer correct or has been totally reversed. I think also it's driven by a desire on the part of clinicians to be seen to be doing as much as they can for their patients. We all have a strong urge to try to improve people's quality of life, to reduce the morbid events, but we need to realise that sometimes not doing anything or doing very little may be a better course rather than trying to do everything possible. 
My name is Rochelle Bookbinder. I'm the Director of the Monash Department of Clinical Epidemiology at Cabrini Hospital and a Professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Preventive Medicine at Monash University. So when I think about low-value care, I divide care up into three categories. High-value care, where the person has a problem and this treatment's been proven to be effective and the benefits far outweigh the risks. Low-value care is where there is clearly no benefit and even sometimes a possibility for harm. And I guess my area of interest is that big area in the middle where we don't really know where the threshold is. In my area of musculoskeletal conditions and rheumatology, there are several examples of low-value care. The one that's been known for the longest, I think, is imaging for non-specific low back pain. So in the majority of cases of people who present with a new episode of acute back pain, we know that imaging is not required. And we now increasingly know that imaging may be associated with potential for harm. And the harms might include the radiation that the patient receives, but it also might include labelling because as the imaging tests become more sensitive, you can pick up a lot of abnormalities that are part of normal ageing, if you like. But because the report includes all of the pathology, patients then become labelled with different conditions. And then there is a whole cascade that happens after that. So the patient might get referred to a specialist or someone with an interest in low back pain. They may get injections that we know are not efficacious. They may get surgery. And these downstream effects might cause more harm than good. So my name is Warwick Inder. I'm an Associate Professor with the University of Queensland and Endocrinologist at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane. I haven't been working on low-value care historically over my career, but I do actually have a personal interest in eliminating episodes of care or unnecessary investigations that really are more of a burden for patients than beneficial. I really don't believe that there are subspecialties where it's more prone. I think it's really across the board, medical, surgical, radiological, pathology. Pretty much every specialty would be able to pull out examples of low-value care. The trials that have gone and looked at traditional practices where people have said there hasn't been any good proper randomised evidence here in relation to this practice. Perhaps we should do a trial and actually look at what happens. In those instances, uh, up to half have been discredited. The COURAGE trial was a randomised control trial of coronary revascularization plus optimal medical therapy versus optimal medical therapy alone in a large number of patients with stable coronary artery disease, predominantly exertional angina. And that showed that coronary revascularization did not confer any benefits in terms of mortality, recurrent myocardial infarction or subsequent urgent revascularization. So that was a major challenge in the paradigm up until then, which was that if patients had more than mild angina, they should have an angiography, and if the angiogram showed stenoses in the coronary arteries, those stenoses should be revascularised, either by stenting or by bypass grafting. And that was the tradition up until then, had held sway for many decades. That trial really challenged that convention, and it was heavily criticised a large body of cardiologists really didn't believe the trial uh, or felt that the patients in the trial were highly selected and therefore didn't apply to their own practice. 
but the trial nevertheless was a large study with uh, I think a representative sample of patients and has led to changes over time but those changes have been slow and not of the magnitude that you would expect based on the results of the trial. My interest in Evolve was largely because of my position within the Endocrine Society of Australia. I chair the Medical Affairs Subcommittee and am the current president-elect. I think Evolve has a couple of purposes really. First of all, to identify aspects or areas of low-value care, and then secondly, to disseminate the identification of these, and perhaps giving practitioners alternatives to undertaking these low-value cares. And often the alternative is actually to do nothing. And that very fact was brought up at our Evolve meeting that was attended by a number of uh, different specialty societies in Sydney. It was actually really good. We had a representative from the College of General Practitioners. We had a consumer representative. And interestingly, the consumer representative was very encouraging of doctors explaining to patients that, look, the alternatives here include not doing this test for the following reason. So I think providing you can justify your clinical rationale for not doing something, that would be perfectly acceptable to the consumer groups. The lists of low-value care items uh, have been developed in different ways by different specialty societies. So we were very fortunate to have the assistance of Jason Soon, who is a member of staff at the College of Physicians. He managed to find, using uh, desktop research, a list of 44 possible low-value interventions that had been identified by other programs across the world. So ESA then evaluated this list of 44. We then thought of a few extra ones and really by process of elimination managed to whittle that down to approximately eight that we thought were particularly important and relevant to the Australian setting. At that stage, we undertook a literature review on those eight interventions and formulated a survey monkey that was sent out to Endocrine Society of Australia members, and they were asked to rank and order the top five most important practices or interventions to avoid. We had a response rate of almost 150 of our members, and from that, our top five list was formulated based on the members' responses. Generally, within my specialty, people are very supportive of the Evolve concept and identifying low-value care practices. For many of the items that we've chosen, we can look at the numbers of tests that have been ordered using MBS data. We can look at the number of treatments, particularly things like different surgical procedures, again, using the MBS items. And I think it's something that we should be monitoring testing different interventions if it's not obviously changing then we need to think about strategies for improving the implementation into practice. The rationalist perspective when it comes to quality improvement is based on good science in the sense that we want to use tools such as education campaigns, revising clinical guidelines, doing clinical audits and academic detailing. There's a number of techniques. They're all based on the premise that if we present good science to what we regard as rationalist thinking human beings, they will change their minds and do things differently. Those techniques are effective up to a point, but they still are limited. 
what limits them is that we really haven't exposed, teased out and discussed the cognitive biases that are still inherent to a lot of decision-making. As human beings, everyone is biased to some degree. Our experience and what we've come to believe strongly does affect our thinking and how we respond to new information and new evidence. The one that I guess comes strongly amongst physicians is loss aversion. That means that we will feel pain, psychic pain, if we feel that a patient has come to a bad outcome because we didn't do something. Whereas if we do something with good intention, but the patient may then have a bad outcome because that care was inappropriate, we don't feel quite as much psychic pain. One of my colleagues, Professor David Torpy from Adelaide, made a comment at a recent meeting that endocrinologists spend large amount of their time worrying about mild conditions. When something is very severe, the clinical features are very obvious. You can make a diagnosis usually without too much trouble and you initiate treatment. When someone presents with a very mild abnormality, the question is, is this a variation of normal or is this the early beginnings of a disease condition? And one of the key ways of making a diagnosis in some conditions is the use of time as a diagnostic tool to see whether there is progression in the patient's symptoms and signs. Once that then becomes obvious, we can then be in a position to intervene with a lot more confidence and knowing that our intervention is much more likely to result in some benefit to the patient rather than over-treating something that's very mild that may in fact be a variation of normal and expose the patient to potential side effects both of their investigation and their drugs or procedures that they're undergoing as forms of treatment. If you're a general physician working in a regional town, you don't have access necessarily to all the MRI and spec scans that uh, may exist in a big tertiary hospital, you have to confront the fact that I can't send this patient hundreds of miles away for this particular investigation. So I'm going to make the best judgment I can based on the evidence that I have in front of me and the results of investigations that I do have access to. And that can show that in many cases the high technology doesn't actually add value to the patient's care, doesn't necessarily improve the diagnostic ability and doesn't necessarily change what we plan to do in terms of clinical management. So the patient still has a good outcome and indeed in some cases has a better outcome because they're not subjected to uh, a lot of high technology medicine that may induce some harm but also at much lower cost and inconvenience to them and to the healthcare system. So I think if we could train or expose our physician trainees to those good, seasoned, experienced clinicians make decisions under conditions of uncertainty without having access to a lot of high technology, uh, they can see that they can provide just as good care and have just as good outcomes and also to some extent have a better degree of professional satisfaction because they've relied more on their own clinical acumen and reasoning rather than default to a lot of investigations in a high-tech environment. There has to really be a systems, a whole of systems approach to this. So we need to have support from the profession as a whole. We need the patients very much to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. We need to change their expectations for care. And I think that's a really important barrier to changing clinician behaviour. And that's 
the patient expectations. So in my research, we found it's much easier to change clinician behaviour if you can change the patient knowledge and patient expectations. You know, we get referrals for an opinion. And if my opinion is that the suggested procedure or investigation is not indicated, I will absolutely tell that to a patient. And the representative at the meeting from the College of General Practitioners was very supportive of receiving written letters and written information from physicians to explain to GPs what best practice would be so that the GPs can avoid some of these things that are being identified through Evolve. And rather than it being considered, you know, big brother telling us what to do, he actually felt that the GPs would be very receptive to this. We're using the example of the thyroid ultrasound. And he said, you know, if he received a, a letter from the endocrinologist saying, you know, thank you for referring Mrs. Jones about her thyroid. By the way, we don't need to have a, an ultrasound prior to assessing these sort of conditions. He would say, oh, OK, that's good. Next time I see someone like that, I won't order an ultrasound. So that sort of just one on one communication from the specialist would actually change change behaviour. Certainly patients and I think the evidence also suggests that physicians overestimate the benefits of treatments and underestimate the risks and harms. That may be to some extent because the evidence for benefit is given high publicity and the risk of harm is not given the same emphasis or in the clinical trials the risks and harms have not been measured as diligently as we measure the benefits. So I think that uh, we need to ensure that people are given the correct information as much as possible, that they can weigh up the pros and cons and decide then whether they think it's in their best interest to adopt this form of care. The question of shared decision-making is a challenging one and I've certainly had experience of patients coming and expecting me to do things. My experience has been that if you sit down and ensure, of course, that you've taken a history and a proper examination and you've given patients time to tell their story... Then you give them a reasoned argument as to what you think is wrong and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And often I will preface my terms by saying, well, if I was in your shoes, this is how I would be thinking. Now, that's not to say that the patient has to adopt my thinking, but it then puts it in a personalised form and I'm giving them, yes, I'm identifying with you, I can see where you're coming from, I empathise with you. In my experience, that diffuses a patient's unrealistic expectations. And you've done it in a way that recognises the patient's rights and to have their story heard and for them to voice their preferences. If you adopt that sort of approach, then in many cases the patient goes away at the end of the interview satisfied, they understand the process and what they thought they wanted in the beginning has now changed considerably. Patients are very surprised to hear when you tell them that actually there's good evidence that this doesn't work. They're very surprised about that when they've been receiving that treatment and been told that it works from others, even when they can see that it hasn't worked when they've had that treatment. I mean, I spend my life taking people off opioids, telling people not to have surgery, <laughs> stopping MRIs. So that's really my practice lately. And it's hard and not everybody will agree with me and not everybody will adhere to what I've suggested. A cognitive autopsy really is a process of reflecting on a case that you may be currently caring for or a case of a patient whose episode of care has been completed. But what you're doing is that you're dissecting out the care that was given in a reflective environment with some time, quarantine time, and with colleagues who are open-minded and prepared to give a balanced view of their perspective on the care of this particular patient and learn from that, OK, what could we have done better? 
what did we do right? Okay, what should we do in the future? So it's a form of cognitive dissection versus anatomical dissection in terms of the traditional use of the word autopsy. A resource that I particularly like is the Less is More series in JAMA Internal Medicine. These are pithy, concise case reports of people who have not had appropriate care and sometimes have had poor outcomes. They're just one page, easy to read, start with a short clinical summary of the case and then followed by a commentary which also cites the evidence as to why this care was low value and perhaps what we should do instead. They come out on a fortnightly basis and I've distributed them to my staff every time they come out because the patient's stories can be powerful. Having thought about this area a lot, I think that we have to be careful and bring everyone alongside with us. We don't want people to do something that they're not comfortable doing. We don't want to be critical of our colleagues. We don't want to be punitive. This has got to be something that we all agree is important for the benefits of our patients. And I think by thinking about the health outcomes as the central value, we should all be able to work together to reduce low-value care. The Evolve website publishes lists of low-value items from the specialty societies that have contributed to the campaign so far. Visit evolve.edu.au to see your specialties list and to access the resources to help you use it. To find out how to contribute to lists in development or to get involved in future reviews, contact your specialty society. You can also email the college. Please write to evolve at racp.edu.au. Many thanks to Rochelle Bookbinder, Warwick Inder and Ian Scott for speaking with us on today's episode. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. To read more about any of the studies or other resources mentioned on the program, visit the Pomegranate website at racp.edu.au forward slash pomcast. Pomegranate comes to you from the College's Learning Support Unit. The program is presented by Camille Merchip and this episode was produced by Anne Fredrickson. Next month, we'll be focusing on the growing field of adolescent and young adult medicine, which will be launched as a separate traineeship by the college in 2017. Although medicine for infants and young children, as well as medicine in the older age groups, have improved dramatically, health outcomes for adolescents and young adults haven't improved to the same extent. And that's where I find adolescent medicine is a really interesting and progressive field to be in. Please join us. <laughs>